We are the men who. It's not a comfortable or easy process, so don't try and make it one. Grieving is a natural process, but so is you feeling frightened. It's not something that's easy all the time. And actually part of the struggle is like, I'm meant to feel a certain way or behave in a certain way. And actually you're gonna feel a whole bunch of feelings during the grieving process or approaching your own mortality. And in a way they're all welcome. And the more we can just be with them all and just let them flow through, not like pick one, then the easier it gets. And that might sound quite counterintuitive to, to people living in a culture where it needs to be neat and tidy. But honestly, that's, that's really the easier and, and honest way. Welcome to The Men Who Talk, the men's mental well-being podcast brought to you by The Men Who. The Men Who is a men's collective for actively maintaining positive mental well-being. With The Men Who, men have the opportunity to talk, listen, support, care for, and help themselves and each other build meaningful connections in person, online, and together. Together, it's our purpose to raise the power of sharing what's on our mind and make it easier for men everywhere to access their well-being potential. Join us on this lifelong journey. We are the men who, and welcome to the men who talk. Frederick, my friend, a very, very warm welcome to the Men Who Talk podcast. How are you today, mate? I'm doing rather well, all things considered. All I'm things considered. Happy to be here and to, to get into this pithy topic with you. This pithy topic, which we shall introduce in a, in a moment. But um, I, I feel that we should, um, we should put a little asterisk for some listeners who have seen us in conversation before, because we know each other from uh, the Scotch whiskey industry, which we both are involved with in, in different ways. And we've spoken before in that capacity. Um, but we're, we're here to talk about something very different today along the topic of, of well-being and men's mental well-being, aren't we? That's right. And uh, in a way, this is all to do with my so-called day job. Uh, my day job uh, being a, th- a therapist and a counsellor and a bunch of other things, working with people and helping them uh, and their mental well-being. So um, it's quite nice to put my other hat on for a change. It is. We, you know, we've talked about this um, on our sort of little forest dog walks about your other side of life. And that's why I wanted to get you on, because um, I think you can add, uh, add a lot to our wider conversation around, around well-being with, with your background and your expertise, but particularly around today's topic, which is something that um, most people generally find quite difficult engaging with um, on a day-to-day basis. And, and the topic that, that we've chosen to bring to the table today is, is around death and dying. Um, not only what that means in today's society, but also how the, the likes of you um, help people either prepare for that, whether it's their own or others, um, but also deal with it, um, when it when it inevitably crosses, crosses their path. So, um, it's something that I'm really keen to get into. I'm, I'm, I've been meaning for a while to engage with this topic personally, um, understand it a bit more because it's not something I've ever delved into particularly. Um, but, but that's why I'm so interested to have you on talking about this with us today. Um, before we do go into death and dying and all things uh, associated, can you give me and the listeners a little bit of background into to who you are and, and what it is you do? Okay, certainly. So I have been working therapeutically with people for over 20 years. Um, Initially, my background was body-based therapy. I qualified as a chiropractor in America, 
and also as a cranial sacral therapist. Um, I was very involved uh, with cranial sacral therapy, uh, both on a personal and in, on the level of profession, um, from about 2005 through to about 2013. Um, during my time working with people with a hands-on capacity, I started to notice that there was a whole other level that wasn't being addressed, i.e. what were the problems that people were coming on more psychologically, uh, perhaps more spiritually, and what they essentially were bringing to the table. So in 2011, I added or started to train in counselling psychotherapy in London, where I was living at the time. And as I came to the end of my training, one of the things we had to do was a whole bunch of uh, placement hours. And uh, because I already had a therapy background, I was able to get what I consider rather juicy um, placement at uh, a hospice in East London. And so most people are like, why do you want to go and work in a hospice? Well, as we'll get into today, uh, it's an incredibly rewarding um, place to work. And I was all about working with death and dying for about three, three and a half years while I worked there. And I, thought, I think also critically, whilst we may be focusing around um, how does it affect men today, there was also a multicultural perspective. I think there were 60 different languages being spoken in that hospice environment because of where it was in Hackney. So that added something else, especially around uh, people's beliefs to death and dying. Um, and then alongside all of that, I've also uh, studied uh, various forms of uh, shamanism and shamanic healing. And I'm happy to come back and talk about that another time. Yes. I, I certainly worked with a number of different indigenous el elders in North America. And then I also have studied with a number of different Tibetan masters as well. Um, and uh, all of these sort of threads I pull together in the work that I do now. I don't specifically say I only work with people who are dying and who have issues around that. Um, in fact, I work with people of all ages, but of course, through my website and my blog, people come to me when they're uh, dealing with, um, with these issues. So it is something that I see in my practice, uh, certainly on a weekly basis. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a very varied background, and particularly around the shamanic spiritual stuff. That's something I would, I would love to have you back on and talk about in a future episode. Um, I know particularly that Joe, who's uh, one of the co-founders of The Men Who, is, is very interested in that field. So um, you have an open invite to return. Um, right. just, just thinking about your entry into this, this career, this, this world of helping people, what was it that initially drew you into that in the first place? Great question. So I go way back to, I think, experiences of healing and energy and landscape. Um, I have memories maybe as early as four years old and growing up on the Fife coastline and uh, experiences in the landscape there, um, which aren't necessarily well accepted in a, in a, particularly in a British culture, but in many Celtic cultures would be. And certainly in many indigenous cultures around the world, it would be quite normal if I said I talk to spirits. Um, these days, people here might question that, but it is something that inspired me and I wrestled with it myself, but ultimately it became or is an integral part of what I do. Um, but again, that's leading perhaps to the other podcast that we will do in due course. But um, for this, it's very relevant because what it enables me to do is have a very broad perspective 
are on the issues that people face around their own mortality and the particular souls and spirits journey that they're on. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say I don't impose my particular views on other people. I've worked from people with all beliefs and none, and uh, it doesn't change the fact they're dying, obviously, but how they can relate to it and, and find ways through that process or their loved one's process. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, yeah, it really helps. So, um, yeah. That's how I got started and how, how I work with it today, I guess. Good man. What was it particularly about? I mean, when you said you had an opportunity to go and work in a hospice um, and you very briefly spoke about that as being a positive experience, whereas I think a lot of people would, would shy away from that perhaps or just not think of it as, as a career route. Thinking slightly deeper about your choice to go or take your career and your professionalism in that direction, why why did you i suppose why did you choose to see that as as a a positive experience where you could go and apply your professionalism and help people in that way so um initially i would have called it a hunch like it sort of felt like the right thing to do i had a body response a gut feeling towards it um but Probably what drove me is that if I'm going to work with people, I need to go and have what I considered at that stage the hardest, most difficult, most challenging experience I could have to stretch myself in order that I could hold everything else. And uh, there isn't much harder than someone sitting in front of you uh, who's just got a, a terminal cancer diagnosis. And uh, learning how to be in the room with that person and support them on their journey is. Uh, you know, obviously it's appalling. It's not for everyone. I'm not for the faint-hearted, but it sounds maybe strange to some of your listeners, but it's one of the few times in life that you will genuinely appreciate life fully more than pretty much anything else you can do. Because um, sure, you can get to a point where you might be standing in the back of a plane about to jump out with a parachute, hopefully, <laughs> or climb a mountain or do these amazing things, but these are very much a personal experience. It's something about sharing in these very pithy moments in life with another human being that I, I haven't found anything else that, 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 that feels like that. Yeah, it's, I, we, may come on, we may come on to it later in the conversation, but you, you, know, you started off saying it was a hunch and then you said that, you know, that I think there was something inside you that drew you towards it. And, and clearly I think that's your, the spiritual side of you talking there, um, that it was more than just a conscious decision that drew you into that world. And um, well, we'll try and explore that shortly. Before we get into the main topic, mm-hmm. thinking about mental well-being generally. So obviously the men who is, it's, it's a mental well-being collective. Um, this podcast is all about mental well-being principally for men but but very relevant to anyone um thinking about that concept mental well-being mental health as, as far as you're concerned either as a professional or a man what does it mean to you and what, what does it look like to you in today's society yeah that's another great question um i'm full of them <laughs> i've got loads written down <laughs> i think this is yeah so what yeah what does well-being mean I mean, I think there are a lot of people trying to define that. For me, it's a mixture of feeling centered. There's actually, we have a sense when we're, we're occupying our personal space and also a sense of groundedness. Like I feel solid, I can handle what's coming my way. 
and then also acknowledging when I'm not handling it or I'm not centered and what appropriate steps can I take uh, at that point now maybe I can sustain myself and there may be exercises that I've learned to do that or maybe I need to reach out and open up and ask for help that's when obviously the male aspect of the question comes in a lot of men in our culture find that very difficult i.e to open up to 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 you know you know say look i'm not strong i'm not coping but these are times it's really essential to do so and um the amount of times i've been told in the therapist chair wow i wish i'd spoken to someone before <clears throat> i hear that all the time and wow once i did i feel so much better already um i wish other people would etc so it's really yeah, the, this a aspect of maleness does play out in terms of well-being. Um, I'm not, incidentally, promoting well-being, as some people might, as like a state of constant happiness. It, it's not, you know, happiness is kind of an illusory thing that comes and goes. I mean, it's fleeting. What I'm looking for is a sense of contentment, which again goes back to the sense of sort of bal balance and centeredness. And I will be honest and say, I'm not always in that state. <laughs> hey life's learning right so that's kind of why i am doing this so so many relevant and interesting points there particularly with regards to the, the definition of happiness and contentment i think um on the last episode with uh, with with nicola who's a change coach we talked about this how you could um you could redefine what happiness means and actually think that your your aim should be contentment and not not this fallacy that um happiness is a permanent state so uh, i was listening to that the other day actually partly to in preparation for this but also because she shared a lot of wisdom around how to reach that state of contentment and, and, and stay balanced and centered um and centered is another really interesting phrase that you can use in the well-being space because uh, again i've said before i think it's um it's an oscillating space isn't it we kind of go up and down and up and down and it's about finding that relative consistency in the middle through little actions in your daily life that you know will just will will help calibrate your mind throughout the day um yeah. i did a really interesting exercise a few weeks ago i started journaling for the first time and um, which i've never done before and this is a, a guided journal in it. it has various exercises in it and one was it was kind of like a spider diagram and you had to score sort of 10 areas of your life based on how satisfied you were with them mm -hmm. um so it was like relationships health um mental health money um career if you're really honest with yourself, you can see where your peaks are and you can see where your troughs are. And at any one time, I think you can find yourself being pulled in a certain direction by one or the other. And if something's pulling too hard in one direction, you just notice the impact on, on the kind of opposite side of this spider diagram. It was a really interesting visualization of what centering means from a, a well-being and a contentment perspective. Yeah. What do you do every day to to keep you centered um to keep you on the straight and narrow and, and kind of contented in your everyday life well some days i don't do anything <laughs> underrated and then i just embrace the crazy but hey that's more high level practice but seriously i get that that, that um maybe people are looking for reasons to uh, to find and activities to do I think the key is paying attention to your thought flow, your process, and obviously your emotions with that, and recognizing when and owning when uh, you're moving away from where you'd like to be and gently pulling yourself back. 
Um, as you say, it's not a set place, a centered place. It, it is an energy flow. So what we're trying to do is, first of all, identify who I am, where would I like to be, and then identify what are my thoughts that pull me away from that, and can I gently let them go to bring myself back to, to where I want to be. And most of us, I believe, that have an innate sense of right or wrong, up and down, uh, good or bad, and, 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 and we have something to work with. Not everyone, and this is obviously when we get into deeper discussions about true mental health issues and when people lose that and need proper professional health, help maybe even uh, moving towards psychiatric. I don't think, I've certainly worked with people who aren't able to locate their center definitively and need help with that. Mm -hmm. Generally, most of us start and can build a sense of that. So what I do, I find myself that really helps is simple activities. Um, there is a lot to be gained from emptying the dishwasher in a mindful way or going on a dog walk in nature and paying attention to things around you. And just really then from that, how you converse with others, you know, where, where, where are you at? Where is your mind at? By paying attention to stuff, you can get a lot of results pretty quickly. And uh, you don't have to try too hard. And people often ask, what about meditation? Well, of course, occasionally I get the opportunity when I'm not super busy to sit down and just center myself. But the main purpose of meditation is to kind of lay the groundwork for this practice of paying attention. And so if your mind is stable enough, you should find it more and more easy. And of course, it's, there are going to be days when you're feeling like I'm a million miles away. And OK, what do I need when I'm a million miles away from myself today? Maybe it's rest. Maybe I need a break. Maybe I'm just, I need to apologize to someone. Maybe I need to apologize to myself. It, none of this is beyond common sense, but equally, it does require a little bit of effort. Um, and, uh, but the result is generally a, a nice one. Like, as our mind stabilizes and we feel more centered, so the world starts to seem more like that around us. Of course, that's more challenging as we're going to get onto when major life events, particularly death, for instance, or ill health, um, or these sort of things, and war, and all the things that are going on around us are occurring. But there is some good news even now, which is, you know, we've been doing this well as Homo sapiens maybe for 150,000 years. We clearly have inherent coping mechanisms otherwise we wouldn't have got this far as a species i know we're not doing everything right and we're still facing real challenges but i do believe in our abilities and often i see with my clients as we remember what these abilities are what our inherent strengths are if you like so it becomes easier for them to calm the bleep down and come back to themselves and that, that that's good to know this is not like going oh god i've got to go and read a bunch of self-help manuals you don't. It's all in you already. It's revealing that. That's the key. Yeah, revealing, revealing that, and, and almost <clears throat> finding ways to get rid of the noise, so that you can just focus on, on what's inside. Yeah. I love what you're saying about um, about about engaging in activities mindfully. I think that's where we go wrong so often these days. Is we're we're engaging in something, but we're either not really aware of why we've engaged in it or or how we are engaging in it and if you yeah. just if you can access that point where you say well whatever it is you're doing be conscious of why you've chosen to do that or why you are doing it why you've been asked to do it for example and what you're contributing through doing that i think that can make even the most mundane task like you say emptying the dishwasher um yeah. 
just a, a lot more rewarding if you're if you're but able I think to there, there's that. another level of it as well which is you know the first step is the basic actions i'm describing but then there's also the interaction with other people and how easy is it for me to get wound up by another person or feel a certain way but are starting to work on actually how much of this is my stuff how much am i interpreting what's been said in a certain way based on my prior experiences and actually is it them who's really pissing me off or is it my reaction to them that's really pissing me off yeah as an example that's also important because we're going to pick as i said one of the most important topics today which is death which i would like to say rings everyone's bell pretty much louder than anything else and it's waiting for us so it's kind of like how we approach that and our attitudes towards it um well it teaches us a lot about ourselves but also it helps us see more clearly like it's a massive topic um you could spend an hour and a half talking about it no doubt but how can we exist knowing that we are finite at least in this form yeah well let's move into that part of the conversation as i said at the top of the show from a very personal perspective, it's something I, I would like to engage with and understand, not, not just from a hypothetical point of view, but also my feelings towards it a lot more. Because like most people I expect listening to this podcast, it's not something they will have ever mindfully engaged in to come back to what we were just talking about. Um, and I think you are, you know, you're a, an excellent person to help, um, to help us mindfully engage, not just in terms of how to deal with grief, which I think there's probably quite a lot of information out there on but also how to prepare for it and beyond that understand you know as a society what what death means to us yeah. today um starting there actually i think when you when you look back in history 50 100 200 years ago society's relationship with death whether in the uk or globally i think was very different to, to how it is today so i'd be really interested to kind of take your views first and foremost on what you think the, the topic of death or the concept concept of death means to people in today's society how, how do you see as a group we're sort of approaching it yeah well i think we need to clarify that a bit we you could break it down a bit more by saying european society and then you could break it down a bit more by even saying british society because it definitely varies from country to country even within europe mm -hmm. the, the the benefit of how health has advanced in the last 100 200 years is we no longer see people dying around us and frequently and whilst we've had a covid pandemic even that has been fairly sanitized like death has happened in hospitals behind closed doors this is a very new phenomenon for us until recently we most of us probably wouldn't have lived beyond 40 years old and that can be pretty mind blowing like right now i would be an elderly man I'm aged uh, 49 whereas uh, these days we can extend life well into our 70s 80s and perhaps even beyond so that's that's something aging is also a really important part of this um but yeah so death is not very present in our culture it's alluded to and obviously we see it in a film but the representation of death in film is often very inaccurate and uh, is more about generating feelings of excitement, if it's a thriller, say, uh, or horror, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not actually how death occurs for most people most of the time. Um, so yeah, the absence of death in our society, absence creates unknown, 
with the unknown comes the difficult feelings. What is it? The uncertainty, the mystery of it. And, oh, I don't know how to relate to it because I can't find it anywhere. And that freaks us out naturally. <laughs> so we're having actually quite a natural response to the absence of something which until recently was very present with us. So then that becomes an issue. Well, how can I have a better relationship with death? And I don't want to jump ahead because I can see why we might get to. This isn't my monologue. So, yeah, keep asking. Continue. I, I think it's fascinating. I think you've, you've described that really interestingly, that it is behind closed doors and that creates a sense of fear in our culture and in our society. I, I suppose one reason for it is medical advances. You know, I think we have the infrastructure now to, in, in the most respectful terms possible, take death behind the veil or closed doors where it is away from sort of waking eyes. But do you think there's anything else that, you know, why have we decided to do that as a society? What, at, what point did it, at what point did we sort of say, you know, we no longer want this to be part of our conscious experience. We want to remove that from the conversation. Well, that's a huge question of itself. Like precisely how or when did it happen? I mean, I think it, it's clearly related to, you mentioned medical technology, but also the whole flow of industrial revolution. And, you know, we also, I don't think we can move away from it, will have been through some massive traumas collectively uh, only a generation or two ago with the First World War or with the Second World War. Uh, and then after the First World War, uh, the flu pandemic that happened when more people died of the flu than actually died in the First World War. And, and so we went from the whole relationship changed when before that it was more just a relative we perhaps knew or a friend to it happening on an industrial scale. And we, we moved away from that perhaps out of shock. I'm sure it's not the only reason. Um, and we have this obsession with tidying stuff up and fighting nature and containing things. I, Again, I'm, I'm not an expert on why we've ended up that, but some people might argue it's a sickness, but we're very disconnected from nature, and this is a manifestation of it, clearly. And, uh, I mean, you haven't asked me yet my main philosophical view that death is inherently a life process, and, and it, it's completely a natural part of life, and somehow we separate, we've separated it out into this fearful thing, and then it's to be avoided or moved away from at all costs, and actually, it's not. It's as natural as breathing. And if, you, if people get into themselves that actually, I'm going to die, but it doesn't have to be bad. And when I get there, the most of us will, it'll just happen and it will be okay. And, and actually really take on board that it will be okay. Um, and actually, what people are more afraid of is, is not the actual final breath or the death, but it's the suffering that leads up to the death. That's the thing that's freaking people out. How do they work whilst they're living and breathing with the amount of suffering they may need to go to with no particular happy ending in sight? When all they've been sold, or maybe that's controversial, what's offered in our culture is constant happy endings mm. and illusions of happiness, which just aren't real, um, as we're beginning to find out. But anyway. So, so picking up there on that word there, because this was going through my mind while you were, while you were explaining that. Mm -hmm. The word sold. To what extent do you think 
let's say capitalism or industrialization has played a hand in in changing our views towards death? Do you think? Do you think there is a kind of so-called marketing effort to say this isn't a nice thing? You should all stay away from it. From it, let us handle it and create an industry out of it. Well, it's it's multi-layered because as well as dealing with issues around our dirty mortality, it's also our addiction to killing animals and how we process meat, turn living beings into food stuff. Now, I'm not sitting here as a vegetarian. I still eat meat. I eat fish. But I'm consciously aware of what happens around farming and the processes with that. So everything, we, we seem to have this obsession with removing any difficulties from our existence, and therefore mm-hmm. that will result somehow in our happiness. What I'm suggesting is turning that right around and that actually the more you can embrace these challenges, the more free you will be. And, and that, that's the liberating thing in all of this. If I can come to terms with death and embrace it somewhat, I will fundamentally be happier because I will be less afraid. Mm-hmm. If I understand what's going on with my food supply. I can make better choices. It's, you know, if I don't know anything and I think food just comes in a packet, you know, well, I don't need to explain that to your listeners why that's probably not the best view. So this is all about getting real with challenging stuff, but not to cause suffering to anyone, but actually to liberate ourselves a bit. Hey, everyone. We just want to say a huge thanks for tuning into this episode of The Men Who Talk and take a quick break from the conversation to remind you how you can access more information on our collective. Head to our website, www.themenwho.com, Drop us an email at letstalkatthemenwho.com or check out our Instagram at themenwho underscore to see what we're up to. Together, it's our purpose to raise the power of sharing what's on our mind and make it easier for men everywhere to access their well-being potential. So why don't you join us on this lifelong journey? Thank you and back to the show. My next question is about in- engaging with positively engaging with death um whilst we're alive but before i get onto that do you, do you think so-called western societies because i absolutely take your point that it differs on a very geographical level cultural level um but do you think so-called western societies will ever reintegrate death back into society in a more positive way can you see that ever happening or do you think that's just something that we're never really going to bring into our into our lives again um, I, I mean, my feeling right now is that we will have to in, in, engage with some major situations which will reframe our um, perception of death. And what do I mean about that? Well, climate change, the moment we've just had a 40 degree heat wave, what happens when we start to hit 50 degrees in 20 to 30 years time and people are just dropping dead from heat exhaustion in the street? What happens when COVID just seems like a picnic with, you know, potential plagues and all the rest? It sounds terribly bleak. It doesn't have to be like that. I think we all know that. But we seem pretty much hell-bent on going down a challenging road at the moment. Um, So confrontation with major things, as I said earlier, does change our view about stuff. Um, That said, it doesn't have to be like that. And on the flip side of this, the very fact we're doing this podcast is people are becoming more conscious of death and dying and engaging with it in a different way attitudes are changing all the time and people are becoming more open to it 
not least till recently and starting again, the more and more people, we live in a global society. So it's no longer, I just got my little British attitude. You know, I'm going to India, I'm going to America, South America, and I'm seeing how people relate to this differently and I'm learning from it. So education opens doors and minds as well. And that is happening. So it's probably a bit of both. Um, but just cycling back, obviously, there is a massive financial aspect to the dying process, or particularly what happens after dying, like the, the funeral, bu funeral business is massive because it's guaranteed business. You've yeah. got to do something with what's left. And uh, it's quite crazy how it's ended up. And our culture tends to say go around cremation, other cultures around burial. I mean, this is a whole other thing, obviously, but um, there's a lot of money to be made. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a dangerous um, corner to go into because, I mean, I I don't know anything about that industry. I mean, you know more than I do, but um, <clears throat> it's an interesting thought to think about the influence that capitalism has on <laughs> on the industry of death, you know, death yeah. incorporated kind of thing. But um, I, 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 yeah, I do think there's a role to be played. I, I love that answer. I think you're right. It's probably a, a, a degree of, we will I, have to, sorry. I do want to add something else that's occurred to me, something I heard yesterday, and uh, going back to discussion around war and its impact. In the early part of the 19th century, you had the Napoleonic Wars and culminating famously in the Battle of Waterloo. And I didn't know this till the last couple of days, that the majority of the 20, 30,000 people who died in that particular battle were ground up and shipped, well, ultimately after about five tens, once their bodies are decomposed and they were just piles of bone, that bone was ground up and spread on the fields of England as fertilizer. Really? That's deeply shocking to the modern audience. But in the early 19th century, you didn't really care about the mortal remains. It, it sounds crazy now, but there weren't the cemeteries and the graveyards like we commemorate. That came in later Victorian times. And that's also really important, a massive cultural shift of personal commemoration. Whereas death before was communal, that once someone was gone, yes, of course, you had a ritual to let them go. But then they probably went into the mass gravesite. Um, I mean, if they didn't have much money, etc. And, that, and that's what happened. Their mortal remains were left. Um, and that's that's quite interesting too. And again, we might be getting back to a point when we can't do much more than cremate people en masse or whatever, but or have mass burial pits. I hope not, but it's, it's increasingly looking like that. Mm. Let's move on slightly from this <laughs> this area of conversation. Yeah. Um, again, part of your role uh, in your professional life is is helping people engage with the theme of death in a, I suppose, the, the most positive sense, either on a one-to-one -one level or when you're helping groups of people, what, 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 how, how can people positively engage with it? Either, you know, whether they're facing their own mortality, someone they love, or whether they just want to engage in it as a human, what kind of things can people do to, I suppose, make it a little bit more comfortable and transparent for them? Well, the first step, well, two things. I suppose don't do what I just did, which is to extrapolate to a more global level, because once you start engaging in large numbers of people dying or imagining a whole cemetery or a whole hospital or a whole hospice or whatever of dying people, you naturally go to feeling a bit overwhelmed. So what I try and do is get people just to focus on what's in front of you. You may want to move outwards a bit and talk to other people who've been through the process recently or in the last few years who've suffered bereavement, what we're talking about, to help calm you to realize actually this is something and feel supported. 
something we've all gone through. Um, so, so that helps. But on the flip side, this is where people go wrong. It's not a comfortable or easy process. So don't try and make it one. <laughs> Grieving is a natural process, but so is you feeling frightened. It's not something that's easy all the time. And actually part of the struggle is like, I'm meant to feel a certain way or behave in a certain way. And actually you're going to feel a whole bunch of feelings during the grieving process or approaching your own mortality. And in a way they're all welcome. And the more we can just be with them all and just let them flow through, not like pick one, then the easier it gets. And that might sound quite counterintuitive to, to people living in a culture where it needs to be neat and tidy. But honestly, that's, that's really the easier and, and honest way. And um, yeah, I wish, I wish I could just say to people, yeah, you know, just focus on happiness and we'll be fine. No, it is scary and, and, and it is limiting. And it is also joyous and beautiful. Everything, everything is present. Um, I often, you know, draw people if they're, if they're getting into it. And I'm like, well, what would happen if a tree never shed its leaves? Very simple example. If tree never shed its leaves, so the tree never died, you would have a massive problem quite quickly with the, you know, that live tree. So we're constantly engaged in a natural cycle. And so this is another thing. How can I open up the various natural cycles in my life? At the very least, we, think we focus on our own death and think, right, I'm going to get to 84 and I'm going to keel over. When you just need to look at your own body and go, you've changed every single cell in your body, all the matter in your body recycles roughly every seven years. I mean, it may be a bit longer in terms of bone, but generally you are completely made new again and again and again. So essentially you've lived and died many times while you've continued breathing. And actually don't sit around worrying, going, oh my God, the, the cell in my elbow is just keeled over. But that is just as much part of you as your thought process right now. So actually opening to the fact that we're constantly in this process of, re of death and birth and regeneration. Um, and actually, maybe the antidote is to go, it's good that I'm finite. And also that this is ultimately a privilege to have this experience in a conscious way. Unlike, as far as we know at this stage, any other life form in this entire universe. And if you reflect on that for a minute and go like, I only get 70 years of this if I'm lucky. It's still pretty amazing in the billions of years of cosmic time that we get to be consciously aware of something that we call life. And if the price of that emission is, is that it's going to end after a certain amount of time, I believe it's worth paying. Mm -hmm. If you imagine just for a moment the opposite, that you would live forever, I would also then say, what would, be, what would you rather choose, death or boredom? So like most people would choose death ultimately because you just can't. Everyone needs to have an ending to, to hold it all together. That's the other thing to consider here. It's like it, it, it can't be forever. And, um, you know, that's hard. We have to come to terms with that. But ultimately, it's liberating. Imagine, imagine all the relationships in your life if they lasted forever and what that would be like. I don't know things to say. Like I run out of things to say after about half an hour with most people. Well, that's mainly an indictment on me because I'm the boring one. Um, <laughs> or I just take it into some awkward space and then realize I shouldn't have gone down that route. Yeah. I'm at risk of doing that right now. Um, I think what you're saying about helping people understand that it is natural and, and getting over this uh, maybe cultural or societal 
feeling that it isn't natural and i do think that exists in some people's minds that it's not it's somehow not a natural thing or not a part of life i think that is a very comforting way of looking at it another thing i wouldn't mind your kind of guidance or experience on is you know so often in life we find ourselves as the shoulder to be cried on um we we have a close friend or relative who is grieving or is is preparing to grieve um what, what kind of things can people do to help the person at the center of that you know to comfort them i think a lot of us find it difficult to know what to say or how to act but what kinds of things can we do to help them on the way it's i think for the first step and also again important from a male perspective is not to try and have an intellectual response to someone else's grief it's okay to take a moment or two longer and just check in with what we really feel inside to what we're being presented with. You could also basically call this empathy. Like if we bring in empathy to that person and allow the empathy to guide us and, and just what words come with that. And that's often very consoling. The, 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 the mere sense that someone else is with you when you feel the feelings that you're having in the grieving process is, is really, really great and, and, and means a lot. And even if you can't quite reach it, it provides a bit of a container to, to what's going on. Um, and often, as you say, the question is asked, what the hell do I say? But sometimes there's just nothing to say and just be, merely being there. And I think also critically, there's often nothing to do. How many times, like, do you need anything? Can I do anything for you? When you feel like asking that question, if you genuinely want to help someone else through action, you do the thinking because when they're grieving, at least in the early stages, their mind is mushy. They can't think about what they need. If you think maybe they need some food, you think about what food they need and go and get it yeah. <laughs> and offer it to them. And that will make it a lot easier. We're trying to help the person not have to use their brain too much, mainly because they can't. So it's offering real things. And I've heard that time and time again. And actually, small practical things go often a lot further than yet another card offering condolences. Yeah. Not that those are unimportant. They, are, they are a sign um, or flowers or this sort of thing. If you want to just think of something a little bit practical um, to help your friend, loved one, colleague, whatever. Um, if you've already got a relationship, then you, you will know roughly what they need or you will get a sense of it. And that's a great place to start. It's quite a similar response to someone who's experiencing depression um I, I think on the surface a lot of the time is you know if you're not if you if you're experiencing depression then then talk to someone but in some instances it's the last thing that people either feel that they want to do or actually feel capable of doing because as you've said their brain isn't functioning properly um and yeah again if someone's if someone is experiencing depression and you are the closest person to them yeah, it's it's going to them with with little practical pieces of support that let them bypass the ability to use their brain or to speak or talk, and and maybe that is the start of building a bridge for them back into um, a more healthy state of mind. So, yeah, I would fully agree that 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 practical approach is something that can help much more than the the hypothetical. Um, and it's really yeah, I mean, you mentioned depression, and obviously as i said grieving is a natural pr process and so brain chemistry changes and and you know we're having a different experience people will feel altered and 
you're not you're not necessarily relating to the normal day-to-day person at least for a while and then depending on the nature of the relationship the person that's been lost that may be for a few months even but just a bit of tolerance and to go okay this is, i can honor the natural process you know not take it first too personally if they get angry because they might anger does is an important and integral part to grief as well and people are <laughs> troubled by that um or even if they're laughing and you might be going, oh, that's not inappropriate. How can they be happy now? They're not. They're just going through the various things they need to go through to integrate the fact that the person that they knew and loved well is no longer present physically in the room or will ever be again with them. Um, yeah. It's, it's a difficult topic, but you know, you've, you've helped us navigate it eloquently, bringing your... Um, your professional experience, but also your, your human experience to the front here. So thank you for helping me, um, first and foremost, engage with this in a way that I haven't before, and certainly the listeners as well. What I'm keen to do is is make sure that your details are in the show notes, should anyone feel the need uh, or the wish to yeah, reach right. out to you for, for a bit more support. Um, but Superb. Well, before we before we wrap up, I want to um, bring us back out of the main topic and, and just back into mental well-being generally and maybe offer a bit of guidance or advice to the listeners based on, based on your experience. So um, if I could ask you, if, if someone came to you, um, a friend or a mm-hmm. colleague or a, an acquaintance and told, them that, told you that they were struggling a bit, based on all of your experience, what one piece of guidance would you offer them to help cultivate a better mental state? Well, first of all, I would try and find out what are they struggling with. You know, what what is the what is the the nature of the struggle, and then and then probably ask myself the question: Well, what what does this struggling need? And uh, as I said earlier, most of us will have some answers for that. Um, you know, we don't need to be all and everything to someone going through bereavement. Um, we might just need to be something for some time, like, uh, as you said, like a, a shoulder to cry on, a hug, uh, someone to talk to, to go for a meal with, to have some food cooked for, to, to, to have a walk with, um, or to give space for someone to be left alone, just knowing there's someone else in the house so they don't have to be by themselves uh, in, that initial, in that initial phase. Again, we get out of our minds and what we think and more into like what do we feel this person when you kind of trust that intuition more we will usually come with the answer importantly though if we feel like well, this is getting too much this is a bit beyond me because i feel too shaken up then it's the time like well maybe i can help this person get some support um, and there's a whole bunch of support out there um, for dealing with these issues um, the other thing then is that it is what can I do to pre-prepare? So we've only just started really in the conversation today, but even developing a bit more awareness and having a think about what it means to, about death and dying for you will help you be ready at least a little bit more when, when these things come up in your life. I think that's, you know, you know, it's kind of paying it forward from the present. And it will be different, but if you've had at least some inkling that death is there and there may be some suffering and what you feel about these things, it will make it easier when it comes around. Um, for sure. Brilliant. Thank you, mate. 
I'm, I'm going to round off with, with the way we always do, continuing the conversation between guests. So I have a question for you from our previous guest, Nicola, which I'll ask you in a moment. And then if, if I'm, I may ask you to leave a question for our next guest thereafter, um, I'd be interested to hear what you said. The, the question from Nicola is, has there been a change in your life that took you on a different course with regards to your mental well-being? Could be facetious and say being born. <laughs> okay, we're getting real. This is back uh, to the shamanistics. I can think of several, several, uh, several moments. Um, I, for me personally, I think we've all. I think it's a mixture of those moments when we've heard a yes, and that might be a relationship. It might be a place we visited, and we have a certain feeling of just soreness that I'm meant to be here. This is. There's something happening in this moment that, that that just just leaves me feeling connected, and those are the little gifts that we experience in life. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have had quite a few of those. But the opposite is also true. There is moments in our life when we've we've experienced a profound no, and that often ties in with death and bereavement, like when we've lost someone we've loved, and you know they're no longer here. And how are we going to be? But I think gradually the, ma- the maturation process that we can all go through psychologically is to realize they're kind of the same, different sides, sorry, of the same coin, and that we need a bit of both to guide us. And actually our losses are just as important, the things we didn't work out for us in the end, than the things that when we felt super connected. And then the real skill is, can we bring them together inside ourselves? And that's, that's the later stages of the healing, like, I've lost this person, but I'm also incredibly grateful for what we shared. And somehow the loss and the gratitude reflect back on each other and, and leave us feeling more full. And then I guess our hope is, can we pass that on? Can our lives touch other people in that way? And not in any kind of financial way that that may come into it, but more like, can we have shared at least something that we learned and, and, and had along the way? At least that's what I think. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Ultimately, um, just yeah, for anyone listening interested on that topic, if you go back to, I think it's episode three with Cameron Murdoch, and he talks about living legacy. So passing on wisdom or a, I suppose non-financial benefit to people whilst you're alive. Um, what, what's your legacy before you die? It's very worth a listen. Um, Frederick, to wrap up, do you have a question for our next guest? You're going to die. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I think that's the, the, the deepest question that we've had on the Men Who Talk podcast so far, but an absolutely brilliant one. Um, <laughs> thank you. I mate. don't want an angry phone call, guys, you <laughs> bastard. <Why it's> awesome. <laughs> I'll get you back on to apologize. No, I think that's a phenomenal question and very, obviously, very relevant to the topic today. I, um, but one final thing, and I, you, know, you asked me how I got started and I said some stuff about being four years old. I died during childbirth. I had the cord wrapped around my neck. I was an emergency C-section. So having then been brought back to life, I guess gave me some awareness that this was a very real possibility from a very early age. So I didn't necessarily know it Mm -hmm. at that point for obvious reasons. But there is a sense of like, wow, you can go through some pretty tough stuff with our living process here. And yet, and yet, there's, there's great conversation and story. And of course, we haven't mentioned whiskey, but you'll have to ask. Oh, that. Well, I was going to say, it's actually been quite nice of a conversation with you that isn't about whiskey for once. 
I feel it's been a bit more serious, but you know, we've we have plenty of time for that, hopefully. Maybe that's the um, balancing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um I do uh, coming back to that, I think maybe there is something spiritual there that you know you went through that experience as an infant and yeah. who knows, maybe it did inadvertently shape the path that your life would take. That's a, a question oh, beyond both of us. And I would have talked about adoption as another issue, but given that I was then adopted, it had a pretty profound impact on me. So I'm, I'm sure that was relevant. A fairly big one. It's easy to, you know, move away from these, these, these deep issues and be lighthearted. And there's nothing wrong with that most of the time, but you were right. This is actually a serious and a very serious topic. And what I'm really alluding to there is that it makes us feel uncomfortable but one of the ways through is to treat it with respect. And we, you know, if you know what respect is, to go like, yeah, okay, I can respect this. It's coming for me. I can respect that. I don't need to get lost in it, but I respect that this is something that I have to live with. And, and, and reflecting on that can, can provide ultimately a lot of mental freedom. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to wrap up. <laughs> Mate, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's been genuinely enlightening. and I'm sure this isn't the last conversation that we'll have on this podcast. You are welcome back anytime to talk about any topic that is relevant to you. So thanks again, buddy. Thank you. All the best. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Men Who Talk. We really hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did and can apply some of today's wisdom to your own mental well-being practices. For more information on this episode or our collective, head to the show notes or visit our website www.themenwho.com or head over to Instagram at themenwho underscore. If you've found value in what we've been sharing, feel free to rate and review our show as it really helps us spread the word and reach more listeners. For now, keep talking, stay well, and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Men Who Talk.